Welcome back to What We Don't Know. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. Today on this podcast, we have Ashish Gadness. He's the founder of Bank U, which is helping subsistence farmers build a financial identity. I didn't know much about supply chains going into this conversation. I don't know a ton about blockchain. Uh, and so I was really learning a lot uh, talking with Ashish. I'm super excited to have him on the show. Let's get into it. Ashish Gadness, CEO and founder of BankU. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. appreciate it. I'd love to, you know, what was most striking about you when we met and what got me to invest in you and really just want to try to help you succeed uh, in any way I can is your mission. You had this wild mission about lip, lifting this crazy amount of folks out of poverty. Can you share your mission? Yes, our mission is to enable 100 million people out of extreme poverty and be a $100 million profitable software company at the same time. Wild. And the way you're going about that is helping subsistence farmers. Am I using that term correctly? Yes, subsistence farmers, uh, workers, small micro businesses, recyclers, waste pickers, in fact, and now health workers in extreme poverty countries. Every, anybody who's in the base of the pyramid who has been invisible in global supply chains, our goal is to ensure they are visible in a way that supports the global supply chain, but allows the people in the base of the pyramid to now get out of extreme poverty. When you say invisible, what do you mean when you say invisible? So the simple example, you know, I started Banky because I got into a fight when I was in, I was volunteering in the Congo and in 2014, when there was a poor mother farmer who I'd worked with for two years, wanted to open a bank account because she was growing coffee, cacao that we were purchasing for $10 a latte in New York. And, you know, I was with the USAID as a volunteer and yet she was refused a bank account. And I got her to fight and, and I said, that makes no sense, right? This mother has amazing harvest. She has seen horrors, but you can't bank her. And the guy said, no, I can't bank her, but I'll bank you. That's where the name comes from. And that's the moment when it punched my gut very badly because I realized, wait a minute, this mother will work hard for the next 50 years, but never have the opportunity to prove her existence in the supply chain because the world does not recognize that she sold a bag of coffee at 15% moisture that showed up in a $10 latte and she cannot prove that. That's why she's invisible. So if I'm saying it back to you correctly, the folks at the bottom of the pyramid are unable to build transactional records or aren't building transactional records that then allow them to become bankable. So I have a couple questions there. I guess one in the same. Once they're bankable, what, what happens? What, what, when you're successful and they've built a transactional record, what now happens that hasn't been happening? Massive, right? So what happens is if you just take a farmer's example, that farmer, if they have what we call the economic passport, which is this transaction history, right. they not only can able to open a bank account because the bank says, look, I don't trust you, but if you said you grow 40 kilos of barley for AB and Bev, and AB and Bev also has the same record because we use blockchain, then I can bank you. If I can bank you, then you have better access to input loans at much lower cost than a predatory lender. You have better access to crop insurance because otherwise you would never have got crop insurance. And most wow. importantly, your information 
is immutable. So if there's a war in Congo and you have to move to Rwanda, your life doesn't start all over again because you can say, hey, look at my economic passport. Right. Right. And, which, and then you can now couple that your yield goes up because you have better access to seed inputs. Or if you are a waste picker on the streets of Colombia, we work with a lot of them, you now have better access to a push card and the bank can now give you a loan at a lower interest rate rather than a microfinance interest rate, which is like 40%. So, so the way agriculture in general, if you're a farmer, the way you grow in agriculture is through these loans, essentially. That's, that's one of the only ways you can really grow substantially in agriculture. And on top of that, the insurance aspect where if you lose your crop, you just get wiped out if you don't have this type of relationship with the bank, the insurance, et cetera. Yes. And there's one more, right? It's ecosystem. So if you grow cassava, but in the down season, you grow peas and carrots in today's world, your data as a farmer is sitting in an NGO database, in a crop insurance database. It's sitting in a social enterprise database. So it's like me telling you, Xander, why don't you go to come, come to, if you want a cup of coffee, walk eight miles, get a cup of coffee. Uh, there's just a cup, then bring water and then bring beans. I'll brew it together. No, right. That's not what we do. Right. So what we have done is we brought everything at the farmer. So farmer can say, I grow coffee. I grow cassava. I have micro insurance. I have used, I use mobile money. It's a passport. What was happening before this or what's been happening before this? Why have these people been left out of creating financial records for so long? It's three things have happened, right? Because what happens, everybody targets the farmer population using a point solution that says, okay, we're going to work with these farmers. And then when their funding ends, right, the program ends, they leave with the farmer's data. Mm. So the farmer has no ability to say, wait a minute, I worked for two years and you gave me a grant, right? So, so, so basically these, these companies, are, there are transactional records for these companies while they're working with these farmers. But when they stop working with them or when, you know, whatever that intermediary that they're working with decides to go elsewhere, they're left with nothing. They don't have those records anymore. No, and even when they're working with the farmer, right, the ownership of that transactional record is with the intermediary. Mm -hmm. So what happens is I can't prove I'm selling you crop because I'm at the mercy of your data. Right. Even though your program hasn't ended. Right. The second point is there's no leverage, right? So, so what happens is if I'm selling you my crop and then you pay me cash or I'm selling you crop and I have no history, if I'm trying to get a school fees loan, because I know there's going to be a good harvest, right? And I can pay the school fees. Nobody's going to give me a loan because nobody can prove that I'm going to have a good harvest because my data is with you. Right. So not only I'm invisible, I have no leverage because I don't have history. I've got to work with you. Even if you're being predatory, I have to work with you because I can't convince someone else easily that I'm a... Uh, credible or you know worthwhile employer part of the supply chain and that's why the interest rate on microfinance is so high right i mean this is a true story look at india the number of farmer suicides is going up every day because the burden of interest on microfinance is so high yeah and then the third point is that because of the first two now you've created a social economic pattern where now the mother or the woman gets kind of discriminated further right so now you're looking at child labor issues because of this, this first two is happening. They're forced to put their kids, uh, pull the kids out of school, put them into um, child labor. And now they can't even actually extend it to other parts of their life. So for example, if I have a household that can prove my ag data and my daughter wants to start a sewing business, these first two, because I'm blind here, I can't even use the third element, which means I can't start a side business to grow, right. to do sewing and stuff like that. So it's, it's all, you know, three pieces, but they're interconnected. And so you talked briefly about 
being at USAID. Yes. Uh, is it USAID or USAID? I never know which yeah, way to pronounce yeah, it. People say USAID. Like, you know, okay. if it is in, in, in the UK, it's USAID. Okay. And that's kind of where you identified the problem. But there's also this larger why of, of why you're doing it once you saw it. How did you get invested in this mission? So, you know, when I ran into this fight, um, I took a year off and I traveled the world to figure out somebody must have solved this problem, right? And the problem is easy to describe, which is people who are in these supply chains can't prove their existence, right? Easiest way to explain. Mm -hmm. But then after I traveled the world, I realized it wasn't just farmers. It was refugees. It was waste pickers. It was micro, it was factory workers, right? But interestingly enough, all of them in one way or the other connected to brands, right? global corporations, for-profit companies that were either sourcing raw materials and finished goods or distributing raw materials and finished goods. And that's when I realized, wait a minute, I, I shouldn't start another NGO or a foundation or something like that. I'm going to go to the heart of the problem, which is that brand is looking at a commercial lens and saying, if I want to have a supply chain that's more cost effective, I need to know what's in my supply chain. And if I can build a software that allows them that profit margin, and at the same time, give this mother her existence in the supply chain, then I've had social impact as table stakes, right? That's when I decided to go down, sell software, sell software to companies who want a supply. In fact, and now COVID has proven BenQ's model more because companies have moved from just-in-time supply chain to just-in-case supply chain. And we are the company that gives a brand the visibility just in case. Yeah, so that's that's definitely the heart. It's it's very easy to tell a subsistence farmer, hey, we're going to help you build a financial record. You should use this, right? That That's an easier part. I imagine getting that message out is maybe more difficult. But to your point, what you can do is just go to the, the big organizations and have them use that as the system. So the pitch to the farmer is easy, right? You're going to have a financial record. Your life's going to get better. You're going to have access to debt. You know, you're going to be able to have insurance, all that. For the big big, you know, multinational corporations that you're working with here. What is that pitch? I know you said the margins get better. Can you, can you explain that plus other parts of the pitch? How's this work? Yeah. So our pitch has gotten better, right? Initially we were like, you know, still the bleeding heart saying you can help the mother farmer, but we kind of realized we were getting pushed into their foundations or their CSR buckets, you're, right? You're saying that the bleeding heart pitch doesn't work with the, the largest multinational corporations. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> I know. I mean, I spent 18 months, man. I knocked on every door telling the mother's story and people like, oh, yeah. Dr. Foundation, right? Yeah, so that's yeah, kind of yeah. when I realized, right? The real pitch is very simple. If you talk to the CEO, the board, or the chief procurement or sales and marketing officer, right? The number one problem they're trying to solve is they want their supply chain to be much more cost effective in a way that they can take that leverage and show it to the consumer to increase sales. So I'll give you a simple example. If I can prove to you where your barley came from, and I can prove to you that the bottle that you recycled is coming back and which mother picked it up, forget the social impact for a second, right? The commercial benefit is so easy to justify because right out of the gate, I can save you 10 to 15% cost in your supply chain on the agriculture side, because now you know what your post-harvest loss could be. You know the quality of the crop as it's moving, right? And I can now reduce your recycling cost because every bottle that comes back as a returnable will save you 30% instead of a new bottle going out. So my pitch is simple. I'll save you money on your supply chain sourcing and I'll make you money on your product going out. Are you in or not? And have people been in? 
Yes. <laughs> it so, sounds yeah. like people are in. <laughs> people are in. Because people, and you know, and I look, you know, I started this because I hated being poor, right? So that's yeah. never, that's been my DNA. But I'm also kind of recognizing that the social impact has to go hand in hand with the profit, right? That's why we're a for-profit, for-purpose company. So I actually steal the line from AB and Web, right? Their CEO says sustainability is their business. So when I make a pitch to CS, I said, look, do you want your supply chain to be profitable and have impact? Then I'm the guy. And now you're in, I think when we were talking earlier, you're in 41 different countries with this, correct? Yes. Wild. It's pretty fast traction. I mean, we were talking, you know, when I got involved with you, it wasn't so long ago, it was maybe a couple of years ago. It was like eight or nine countries. Yeah. When, when you're getting pushback, when, when corporations are saying, no, we don't want this, we want, we want the system we're using, what typically does that look like? You know, the typical pushback is, and, and I use the word courage, right? When we get pushback, it's because the brand or the CEO or the decision maker does not have the courage to take on transparency, right? That's the only pushback I've gotten where we've lost deals, where they'll say, we love it. And you know, if we go into these mines and we'll find out that they're using children in our cobalt mines for our yeah. you know, uh, phone batteries, then the brand will say, wait a minute, I don't wanna know that. Right, I'd, ra I'd rather have a legal route to like deny Correct. that we know what's going on there. Correct, but on the flip side, courage, right? So Japan tobacco, right? You look at, you know, people, I don't, tobacco, alcohol, I don't really care. I just look at the issue. Japan Tobacco uses us in four countries. You know how they use us? They use us because they have connected the school attendance system to BenQ. Mm. So when a child walks in class, it's reported on blockchain, under secured and privacy conditions. So they know which farming families have child labor issues or not. Interesting. They know when they're not showing up to school anymore and they can assume if it's an agriculture area. Exactly. That's so wildly interesting. So when we talk about you know, when we started this conversation, we talked about the value of BankU being allowing these farmers to make their way out of poverty and get a financial record. But now we're also talking about, you know, ending child labor as well and the potential it has. What would be, what would I be most surprised by about the supply chain or horrified by about the supply chain? Because I hadn't thought about tracing child labor like you're talking about. What else have you seen? What else is being solved there? Uh, you know, take recycling, right? Recycling is the biggest informal sector in the world. Wow. Yet it's one of the biggest problem our environment faces today. The recycling industry. Yes. I mean, I, in fact, you know, again, I'll give you a success example, right? In Colombia today with Bavaria, we're live in four cities, 17 cooperatives, and the waste pickers finally have an identity that says, I'm a waste picker, right? Mm. I, I was in Colombia twice this year before the quarantine and I walked the routes. I'll send you the video. People, I mean, I, and I was walking with the uh, waste pickers and people looked at me as a waste picker and they threw a bottle at me thinking that I was a waste picker. Yet these are the people who work at the wee hours of the morning, picking up the garbage we throw. Wow. And this is the plastic, this is the cardboard, this is the PET, this is the LDPE, right? And I think that that was, that, that kind of shocked me that the, the circular economy, the circular packaging that every CEO is standing up and saying, I ask a simple question to a CEO of a company that is putting out, you know, whatever, can, bar. I said, do you know the name of one waste picker on the street corner of Zambia or wherever, right? And do you know that waste picker picks up your can every day so that you can claim circular economy? They can't. Right. 
And with waste pickers properly identified in the supply chain or having an identity, what what then improves in that? I, I totally get the farmer who needs to build a financial record or the farmer who you need to make sure isn't using child labor. What happens when the waste pickers are part of this uh, financial economy? In fact, for waste pickers, it's actually more important than because farmers are cyclical, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll grow crop three times, four times, right? So I'm building that base. You know, waste picker in Colombia, Zambia, and other places where we operate, they're daily, pay, daily wages. So they're gaining two, three dollars to feed their kids, which means they'll never break out of extreme poverty. So the, the, what we've now proven, and I can send you the video, is that that waste picker, every time he sells four kilos of plastic or three bottles, that SMS message starts building his or her economic passport. Mm-hmm. And now they can now sit down with the bank and say, don't trust me, talk to Bavaria, because Bavaria can tell you I'm their waste picker. And now I can get a better push card instead of hauling two bags on my back, right? In fact, I spoke to a mother in, in Colombia. She lives in a really poor neighborhood. She's been a waste picker for three years, three years, right? She maintains it on her piece of paper, but no bank will give her a loan so she can buy a little right. hut so she can move her kid out of the slum. Now she can. So it continues to be about building that financial record in all these different verticals. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it, it is, in my opinion, child labor is actually, child labor is integrated with uh, extreme poverty yeah. and gender inequality, right? Yeah. Because if you're, you're gender discriminated, which means your income level is going to be off, your children are going to be forced into child labor. So the way we look at the problem is if you're in that last mile in the base of the pyramid and you don't have the ability to prove then you're not going to ever break out of the cycle. And that's what we do. That's fantastic. People tackle poverty at the solution set level. So they'll say, we'll teach you about gender equality or we'll give you a loan. But what we have figured out through the hard way, the poverty link is not at the poverty level. It's linked at the brand level. Because mm. if a brand says, look, I'm going to make t-shirts in Malaysia, do they ask the question, does your Malaysian agent bring in slave labor from Sri Lanka? Right. Nobody knows. That's the problem that needs to be solved. You mentioned before that you hated being poor. Can you, can you tell yes. me a bit about that? <laughs> when, when, when were you poor? Where were you? How well, work? I grew up in India, right? I grew up poor in India. And I hated being poor because, you know, I just stand in a ration line, right? I stood in a ration line with my brother. Uh, I was lucky. I was learned how to code. I got out of poverty, right? And, and for me, uh, my poverty in India, by the way, was middle class compared to poverty, what I saw in Africa, right? Everything is relative. Right. But I think why I hated being poor is that um, it was the non-existence part of it, right? You are a nobody, right? And that's the thing that has always stayed with me. And, and then this is kind of funny you like this because in 1994, when I came to the US legally, if anybody's listening these days, <laughs> um, you know, I was able to open a bank account. Yeah. I was able to open a bank account because I, was, I had a rent receipt, I had my pay stub, and I had my telephone bill, right? 1994, I opened a bank account in Boston. In 2014, 20 years later, Vander, that mother couldn't open a bank account, but yet we, in 2014, we had Facebook, we had the internet, we had mobile money, we had WhatsApp. And so with all the technology, we really didn't address, you know, technology came to people in poverty, but it didn't enable people out of poverty. That's what I'm going after. Before we close things out, I want to touch on two things. One, one is we haven't really talked about the nuts and bolts yes. of how this actually works. Like what, what happens? To your point, new technology has allowed this to be a thing. It wasn't, it wasn't really possible for this to be a thing up until the last 10 to 20 years. I mean, even more recently in the ways that you're leveraging blockchain. So can you talk about literally 
what happens when someone is a part of the bank you network? It's actually super simple. So, so just a couple of quick fundamental things. We use blockchain, but without cryptocurrency. So that's a fundamental uh, difference that keeps us out of anybody in the space. Second is the actual mama farmer or the mama waste picker does not need a smartphone. And this part is super critical. And here's why. We don't believe in throwing more technology at poor people. In fact, I've never had to train a farmer. I've never had to train a waste picker. And here's why. At a very basic level, when that mother grows the 40 kilos of barley and she comes to sell to a cooperative that's in the ABN web supply chain, she gets an SMS message in the local language mm. that confirms the quality, the quantity, the price, and the payout in the Zambian Kwacha that she can cash out in Kwacha or get M-Pesa in Kwacha or her bank account, right? So the way the technology works at that level is like no brainer. In fact, that's why farmers love it because they're like, oh, I get this SMS receipt and my money is guaranteed. I've never met a farmer who said, please don't tell me the price, please don't tell me the weight and please don't tell me if there's an incentive, right? right. How the technology works is we use blockchain as a service on software as a service, right? So like we run it just like you use Netflix or salesforce.com and we connect the supply chain, farmer, cooperative, aggregator and the brewery. So when the mother sells the 40 kilos, the brewery knows this mama sold 40 kilos at 16%. And this is the magic. If the middleman tried to cheat her and sell 40 kilos at 12%, the brewery is going to say, hey, on blockchain, I don't see 40 kilos at 12%. Right. Because the mother agreed to 40 kilos at 16%. Right. So a lot of you know, technology sophisticated and the back end, but the front end is dumb, simple. That's those larger margins you were talking about. That's that's how these these larger orgs can improve their margins. It's because there's that transparency at how much is being marked up per, per leg of the supply chain. And it meets the sustainable development goals, right? I mean, you if you talk to Carlos Brito, CEO of uh, APN Fab, right? Or Japan, but they'll tell you. They buy BankQ because it serves a massive commercial importance, but also sustainability component because they know how many women farmers. Right. How many women recyclers? How many children are coming out of child labor? So big UN SDGs, but you always start with the for-profit lens and then for purpose. One of the reasons I like your company so much is I feel like we're at this um, very interesting phase in the discussion around how our economy should be structured. And if capitalism, if it's even possible to reform the version of capitalism that we have now, or is it by its very nature extractive and always going to be, you know, increasing margins for one side and 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 trying to get, you know squeeze everyone who doesn't have leverage, as you put it, as much as possible. And your 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 company gives me a little hope that you know maybe in this intermediate, maybe we do adopt a system that's that's radically different at some point, but that this system can have ethical outcomes that are good for everyone. Yeah, because for me, look, I look at I look at two simple things, right? If you just look at gender inequality and extreme poverty, they go hand in hand. Right. Why does capitalism become relevant to those two? If you give a mother farmer or a mother recycler the history of her supply chain data and equal access to credit simple, right? Basic English, basic capitalism rules, you would have solved a massive problem of gender inequity and extreme poverty because a mother who is having same access to finance is going to now have a longer, bigger impact on the family unit. Right. And she is a capitalist because she's selling crops. She's selling her, her aluminum and plastic. So a more successful mother farmer means a daughter that 
potentially gets to have a full education. Absolutely. And the mother is capitalist. I, when I look to farmers, right, I have no pity. I look at the mother farmer and going, man, you're an amazing businesswoman, a recycler who's pushing cart and feeding three kids at night using two bucks. You're like the amazing capitalist. The only thing the world has stopped you from doing is we've not introduced data democracy to you. Right. We've lived in data dictatorship. That's all I do. So, all right, you're in, you're in a rush to move 100 million people out, out of poverty. That's the mission. How far along are you? And, you know, what what's what's next that really excites you? Uh, so 600,000 uh, so far in 41 countries. God willing, we'll be at about a million by the end of this year and then 10 million end of next year. Uh, and the key piece that uh, gives me hope is, you know, we've introduced something called four words, which is that last mile now through BenQ, because you know, we're kind of like the anti-Facebook in the sense we don't own data because it's blockchain. Mm -hmm. That mother has the ability to own, access, monetize, and permission her data. Mm -hmm. Those four words will take me to 100 million mm -hmm. because it's a game changer. Can you tell me a story, a specific story so far of someone who got these records and you've seen this hypothetical situation you're talking about play out and now they have an expanded farm or their daughters went to school or is there something that stands out to you? What makes you smile most when you think about the outcomes that have happened? Uh, 100%, I'll tell you life. So one quick thing before I, before I forget, because I know your amazing work with refugees. One of the biggest problems the world's about to face is the equitable or inequitable distribution of COVID vaccine. We're actually gonna be doing this with the Islamic Development Bank. But one thing that hasn't been solved that we're gonna solve in, but in one part of the world, we can hope we can solve all part of the world, is when these refugees get the, the vaccine, they should own the health record that their children mm. got the vaccine and blockchain is a way to do it. So just something to think about. Now, let's tell you, tell me, I'll tell you the story about Esther, and this is public information, you can look it up. So Esther is incredible mama farmer in Uganda. And two and a half years ago, she had come to sell her barley. This, she was not on PayQ, and she got a paper receipt. It rained and the paper receipt disintegrated. And she had to wait for four days to get paid because she couldn't prove the paper receipt. Fast forward, Esther's been on BenQ now almost two years actually, coming up, um, January 2019. Esther now walks with full pride and honor for two reasons. One, she says in her local line, look me up because she can now on her SMS phone prove that she exists in the Nile Breweries ABNBF supply chain and every bag she's sold is there. Number two, the bank has now opened a bank account for her. So now Esther, the mama farmer, actually now is a lead farmer. So she goes into remote areas where the farmers don't have access and she buys crops for them. So she's become her own co-op. So her children are in school. I think she has a motorcycle now. Right. And in the recent uh, harvest, she's part of the crop insurance. That's really exciting. And what a wonderful story. I'm sure that makes you smile so much thinking about oh, man, thinking about it's, her it's with her own business now and, and you know, creating creating more wealth. And I'm sure she's she's getting the farmers now in her supply chain to use your system as well, which is really great. And you know what's important? It has nothing to do with BenQ, right? And I'm I'm a big believer. I used to have a giant ego uh, back in 2012, and now I'm lower than the doormat. And here's why. It's not about BenQ, it's not about blockchain. You know why? That mother farmer should care less because it's just the SMS, right? You know, we're no heroes. The heroes are them, right? So what I try to tell my team and other teams is that the value is not what we're doing. The value is that she now has the leverage 
that she can use. She's always been creating the value. There was just no proof of how valuable she was that's for her to all. be able to participate. Bingo. Well, that's wonderful, man. I don't want to keep you too long. I appreciate you jumping on with me. I want to let you, you know, f- get freed up and keep chasing that 100 million person goal. Uh, appreciate you so much, man. Thank you. God bless you, man. Love you. Thank you so much. All right. Love you too. Take care. Thank you. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to What We Don't Know. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com slash WWDK. You can also follow us on social. We're WWDKpod on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. All right, take care.